Stay relevant and up to date. Keep you informed. This is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. How are you doing? Hope you are having a lovely day. And if you're joining us on 101.9 Hi FM or on the Jerusalem Post, it is good to be with you. Now, on the show today, we are going to be delving a little bit into history and uh, going back a bit into the 20th century's one of the most interesting figures, a person involved in world affairs, involved in South African affairs, and actually very much involved in Jewish affairs, particularly talking today about the issue of the Balfour Declaration, just a month or so ago, being uh, celebrated the 100-year centenary uh, of, of the Declaration. And we're going to talk about someone who was actually a key person in crafting the Balfour Declaration as well as a number of other major international treaties, things like the League of Nations, as well as the United Nations uh, Charter. And the, that person is Jan Smuts. He was the Prime Minister of South Africa for a number of years. He was involved in the Boer War. He was part of the Imperial War Cabinet uh, during the, the, the World Wars. And we're just going to get a sense of the man and what his connection was uh, with Israel. And a man who's going to help us to do it, his name is Philip Veyers, and uh, he is the great-grandson of Jan Smuts. Philip, welcome to the New Blue Review. Thank you, Benji. It's great to be here. So, uh, first of all, you, you are the great-grandson of Jan Smuts. What does the family tree look like? Well, the, the Obas and Omar uh, had six children, six surviving children. They had three before, the, uh, before my grandmother, my grandmother being the, the eldest of the surviving children. Um, and they had six children. Then they fostered a daughter as well. So they had seven that they raised, and uh, my grandmother was the eldest child, um, and my father the second of her three children. So uh, you, uh, you, you came down the line uh, <laughs> that, that way. Um, Give us a sense about the man. I mean, he, he was an Afrikaner. He fought in the Anglo-Boer War. And then he became this, this almost global icon at the time. Uh, so, so give us a, a bit of background as to his life. Well, Benji, he, um, I think he's an, a man who's tremendously misunderstood today still, which is why I'm very grateful that uh, people such as Richard Stein are producing very competent biographies about him. Uh, to clarify um, what is, in fact, hidden history. Because bear in mind, of course, that from 1948 until 1994, the, the history of the Abbas was uh, quite effectively hidden. He was regarded as a friar, as a henshopper, as, as a traitor t- to the cause. Um, but essentially, he was born in, in 1870 um, on a farm called um in Rebic West. And in those days, only the elder, the eldest son, uh, was formally educated. All the other children were edu- educated uh, homeschooled effectively by their by their uh, their mother, and this is what was uh, destined to happen to the Obas because he had an elder brother called Michil. And um, when Michil though was um, when the Obas was was twelve, Michil died, um, and suddenly this the slot for the eldest son became open, and the Obas at the age of twelve was sent off to to the Ark in Rebek West to go and go to school for the first time. Um, four years later, he matriculated uh, with such competence that he was sent to what was then called Victoria College, now Stellenbosch, where he read arts and sciences. Um, and um, just an interesting anecdote from that time, he assumed during his studies that he was going to get a credit for Greek. Um, and it became evident to him six days before the exam that, in fact, this wasn't going to happen. So he locked himself in his room. 
and six days later emerged able to speak, read, and write Greek. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, it's one of the great sadnesses in my life that that level of intellect has all but disappeared <laughs> in three generations, and I'm uh, left with what I've got. Speaking English, not Greek, <laughs> which is good for good for this show. <laughs> so, so after he went, uh, what was the you saying? Is now Stellenbosch? He, he actually went overseas to to England to Cambridge. He did so well um, in his studies at, uh, at Stellenbosch at Victoria College that he won what is called the Ebden Scholarship, and he went off to Christ College in Cambridge to read law, um, where again he excelled. Um, he did the Law Tripers, which was a two-year course. He did it in one year, and to quote, well, emerged brilliantly first, uh, achieving marks that certainly when I last heard had not been equaled, let alone bettered. Um, and Lord Todd was asked in the 80s who were the five most brilliant students ever to study at Cambridge in its 600-year history. And uh, Lord Todd thought about it and said, well, in fact, there were only three, Milton, Darwin, and Smuts. And uh, he then was admitted as a barrister um, in England, um, and he was tremendously homesick during that whole time and decided to come back to South Africa, uh, where he did. He came back to to Cape Town, um, became a very strong supporter of Cecil John Rhodes. Um, The the Obas' philosophy of holism, um, which was to emerge um, some years later, um, fitted into Rhodes' great Cape to Cairo concepts, and he um, he became a great uh, supporter of Rhodes. Um, but it, it didn't really last, did it? It didn't last at all. The Jamison raid got in the way. Mm-hmm. And when the Obast um, discovered that Rhodes, in fact, was behind the Jamison raid, that was the end of his support. And, and the Jamison raid, really, you know, for people who might not know, was a... a Basically, an attempt to overthrow the Afrikaans Republic in the in the Transvaal um, over basically a dispute about rights of voting rights and uh, on also I think a control of the minerals that were being Correct. discovered in the, in the Transvaal. The, at the time. question, quite That's right. right. And and Smuts at the time he was the Attorney General for he for the um, he was the uh, the State Attorney. State Attorney. Um, and he had there by that stage uh, met and married um, Omar Smuts. Um, who uh, was ma- whose maiden name was Kricher? They met when uh, when they were there at Stellenbosch. Um, it was her idea to study medicine, but uh, the Obas derailed those plans and brought her up to Pretoria. When he became disheartened with uh, the situation in the Cape, um, he came and joined the uh, the Kruger government, the Transvaal Republic government, and um, as you said, became state attorney. And um, then the the Boer War broke out, obviously, and. Um, he uh, went to war quite quite successfully, as it happened. Well, he interesting. Uh, he he wasn't really a military man, uh, but when he got you know into the saddle and with a rifle, he was very effective. He was one of led one of the few incursions into British territory during uh, the war, and he actually invaded the Western Cape uh, for a long time. It was, it was an enormous trip and a tremendous undertaking. He started in the Eastern Cape and wound his way, uh, his way around to the Western Cape and then up the West Coast, in fact. And um, it must have been a horrendous journey because the, the saddle that he used is in Smuts House Museum in Irene today. Um, and it would take quite a while to uh, cover that route by aircraft and how to do it in such an uncomfortable saddle, I think, um, <laughs> uh, certainly eludes me entirely. Ne- never mind how freezing cold it must have been in, in a war situation, moving troops. And, 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 you know, the... Um, 
the enormity of this, he was actually very successful. He went to go and rally forces to go and get the, the, the Cape, now bearing in mind that the Cape province was under British control. He went to go and rally support um, and get volunteers. And he was very successful at, in doing that. And while he was obviously engaged in that, um, um, it was decided to, um, to surrender and uh, he was called back to, uh, to Fienachem. But that was where his horse was shot out from under him on that time. Uh, on that expedition, and 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 also kind of marks the first time in Smuts's life where he begins, I wouldn't say a divergence from from the Afrikaner ethnic group, but there were two two groups essentially in in in, in at that point in the Anglo Boer War. There were the ones that wanted to carry on fighting, the bitter enders, and the guys that said, "Look, you know, we had an issue with the British, but we're not we're not going to win this." You know, they. Comp- British completely uh, decimated the Afrikaans population with the concentration camps and all that kind of thing. Uh, and so he was the one who said, look, it's better to to try and sue for peace, in effect, and, and establish some sort of con- control of the territory and engagement with the British. The, uh, there were a number, in fact, who, who realized it was all over. Mm-hmm. Um, not least of all the hardships um, being, being placed on the, the women, children, and elderly. Um, and of course, what one what one uh, forgets and is all too often forgotten in history is the uh, is the number of of black South Africans who uh, who were killed or who died in the, during the Boer War. That is in excess of twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, Boer women and children amounted to, to just short of twenty eight thousand, if I recall. Um, but the bitter end is the the fact though that the Obas then became pally pally with the British after that is what many people still today can't forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, and one finds it if, if on social media somebody places a photograph of the Obas, there will invariably be uh, a comment about how he... Um, sold out. He sold out to the, uh, to the British um, and, and forgot about his own people. But there's a story behind that as well, which uh, most folks don't, uh, don't or won't uh, take, into cogn- take into consideration. Well, it, it it was very interesting because once he he basically he was the one who helped negotiate what we now call South Africa. Right? At the time, it was Cape Town, Natal, the two Boer republics of uh, Free State and uh, uh, and the Transvaal. Uh, and here we're talking about white South Africa at the time. There was not really a conception of what black South Africa would be, but but they were separate entities. And he was. In 1910, the person or one of the people had to sit there and negotiate how to put all of these things together after the, this, this terrible war. Absolutely. There were four, as you quite correctly said, at the end of the Boer War, there were four independent um, countries, which uh, uh, was obviously the, the, the Cape Province, Natal, the Free State, and, uh, and the Transvaal, um, all under British control, but all independent. And it was... The, uh, it was the Obas and Louis Boerta mm-hmm. who had this vision. Um, again, it ties into the holism philosophy that the Obas was uh, was to become well known for in, in, in later years. That the four should be uh, joined and become a union and become one country. And there were others as well. The Obas also had eyes on what was then right. Southern Rhodesia and uh, Botswana uh, as well. Yeah. Um, probably just as well we didn't get Rhodesia. Um, <laughs> Botswana might not have been a bad idea at all. <laughs> and let's skip a little bit. I mean, the, the, I, I'm fascinated by that early history of South Africa. But he ends up as 
kind of part of the British Empire, um, winning some elections, losing some elections. That you could you could do a whole show just on the electoral successes and defeats of Smuts and what became what was called the South Africa Party and then the United Party, which stretched all the way into the eighties. Uh, but because of his background with with Imperial England, uh, that's where we start to get an insertion of the Balfour Declaration and uh, and and his connection to to the Jews from from that perspective. Uh, can you start off by maybe telling us, you know, why did Smuts have this connection with the Jewish people? It's an interesting story. Um, just to just to explain how he got to be in position to influence the Balfour Declaration. Um, he, in 1916, was sent to German East Africa to defeat um, General Paul von Letter Forback. Uh, that never happened. That uh, He chased Paul von Letter Forback all over East Africa, but never never captured him and never defeated him. Um, and interestingly, they became very close friends afterwards. The Obas didn't uh, bear grudges, and it wasn't a personal thing to him. Uh, what he did, the only thing that, in fact, he caught rather than von Letter Forback was, uh, was malaria. But so, so you're saying he went to East Africa as part of the First World War? Correct. Or, so he was basically the military, because there was Southwest Africa, uh, Namibia, that Correct. he did that campaign, and then he had to go to Correct. East Africa to fight on behalf of what was called right, the right. Allied Forces. Back Correct. Then. Okay, fine. Carry on. Um, and he was then withdrawn from East Africa and sent off to the Imperial Conference in, in London. Mm-hmm. And when he got there, he became very friendly with uh, Lloyd George, uh, particularly, he was the prime minister uh, at the he time. Was the prime minister, and um, he was asked to join the Imperial War Cabinet uh, because, interestingly, at that point, the the, the Imperial War Cabinet had not a single uh, soldier uh, on amongst its membership. So the boss was the only and, and, no, and no dominions either, and, and no dominions. So, so I mean, just so people understand, basically, it was like a commonwealth of people who were fighting the war. It was the British government, but then technically, you could have had the Canadians and the New Zealanders and the South Africans. So, Absolutely. so he was actually asked as a South African rep to join that conflict. And as you say, he was the only one of the um, colony dominion, yeah. um, or as you say, colony uh, representative. Um, he. When he, when he joined the, 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 the war cabinet, he was, um, a number of things happened. One, he really went to work. He was a prodigious uh, worker with huge amounts of energy. He was sent off to Wales to go and look at a, a coal miner strike. Uh, he arrived at Tony Pandy and uh, asked them, please, to sing a song because he um, had heard that the Welsh were the greatest singers in the world. Um, the Welshman, who, 10 of whom, 10,000 of whom had uh, arrived to hear him, um, didn't come to hear him. They came to see what an African looked like, and none of them knew what an African looked like. <laughs> and as it turned out, he looked pretty much the same. But um, he then said, please, would they sing him a song? And they sang Land of Our Fathers. And he then diffused the strike totally and went back to London, and the strike was over. But he was obviously very useful to them um, in so many respects. But the, the, the Balfour Declaration came about uh, where England signed this, declara- the, this, this declaration of intent. It was no more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, in consultation with Lord Rothschild, um, particularly Chaim Weizmann, but nobody had access. Neither none of the Jewish community the, who who were actually pulling strings had access into the into the War Cabinet until Chaim Weizmann and the Obas met in 1917, and they became very close friends. They were on intellectual level. They enjoyed one another's company, um, and they, they became personal friends. And what it led, what it actually created though was this conduit into the War Cabinet. Um, for 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 Weizmann, 
And to somebody who had, was carrying a lot of influence, had enormous influence over what was going on, people sat and listened to him when he spoke to the Obas. Um, and so it came about that the, the Balfour Declaration, after numerous uh, false starts and um, um, even more drafts that were um, shuffled back and forth, um, the declaration was uh, was um, promulgated. Or, it was created. It was declared. <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, uh, the, while he's not credited with it, Chaim um, Weizmann himself said, um, no smuts, no Balfour Declaration. <laughs> that is the degree of influence in Weizmann's eyes that he had. And it was then sent to Lord Rothschild and said, please, uh, and told, please advise your people. Your community. Well, you're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. And we are learning a little bit, a bit about the history of uh, Jan Smuts uh, with my guest, Philip Weyer. And uh, we'll be back just after this. Chai FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. And welcome back to the program. We're talking about Jan Smuts today and, and his history. And uh, a little bit of uh, his connection to the Jewish people. We were talking about the the Balfour Declaration just before the break. I understand, Philip, from what you're saying about you know the, the connection. But why would he be interested in in, in helping Weizmann other than a personal level? He did have a connection with the Jewish community. Um, he was what you would call, I guess, a philo semite, someone who who liked Jewish people but wasn't necessarily themselves Jewish. I think so. I, I, th- I think that's probably accurate. Um, I also think that, well, I know that he was a Zionist, uh, a, a very strong and staunch Christian Zionist. If one goes back to his childhood years, he was raised in the conditions of um, uh, religious conditions of uh, Christian Calvinism. And he believed that it was biblically and historically correct that it should happen. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a, a great affection for the South African Jewish community um, had encountered among, um, amongst them a number of really close personal friends, not least of all um, Sammy Marks that you mentioned earlier um, and it can, this was continue to continue to, throughout his life um, he just was personally convinced and being a man of very strong convictions that uh, this was the right thing to do, it was biblically ordained that it should so happen um, and he was able to do it therefore from a moral perspective um, Unlike probably Balfour himself, mm-hmm. uh, Lloyd George, um, where there is a strong indication that the motive for their support of the Balfour Declaration and indeed their um, professed Zionism was to appeal to the American Jews uh, for assistance in uh, the darkest hours of the war, as, as it was stated then. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no such ulterior motive for the Obas. He had nothing to gain, to gain from, it. Uh, from that at all. Um, to him, it was just the right thing to do. Oh, absolutely. A very, very interesting uh, bit of, of history there. And if you go back and read some of the history, you can see often how uh, you know he would be... He would arrive at uh, fundraising events for, like, the Zionist Federation here in South Africa as the Prime Minister of South Africa and say, listen, you know, as the Jews, we want you to, uh, uh, we, we need you to give. It's not something that you could even imagine happening in today's uh, politics. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting uh, a mental picture. Let's get back onto the holism, right? So you've mentioned that a few times. This was Smuts's philosophy, which he developed um, Partly because of his interest in the environment and botany, uh, partly it, re- it reflected, as you say, in some of his 
a political international leanings. And I would argue also in how he believed things like the United Nations, I would say, also was was part of that vision of the world. So explain to us, what, what is this philosophy of holism that he developed? Benji, holism, um, to put it extremely simply, because the, the book itself that the Obas wrote, Holism and Evolution, um, I've tried, I think, f- four or five times to read it, and I think the, the furthest I've got is page two. <laughs> um, it really is really, really hard work. But essentially, it, it creates, it, it goes about the interdependentness of, of every, every, fo- every life form on earth. How everything is in, in interdependent, um, and how the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think you're quite right. I think that, um, the, the background to that philosophy had tremendous influence in the League of Nations, um, the United Nations, the Commonwealth of Nations, um, and bearing in mind the, the United Nations, the uh, the preamble to the to the charter he wrote in his own handwriting, which I can't read. Um, but the charter itself, he was sent a proposal, uh, proposed draft for the charter, and he said, "No, this is far too far too full of legalese. People won't be able to understand it." And he rewrote it, um, and. It is while he's not, he's not acknowledged as the author of the charter, certainly um, um, it's been said subsequently that there was only one person in the world who had the uh, the insight and who, was, who would have been able to actually write it the way it's written. It's re- it's really smutty if you look at the way it's written. Yes. Okay. So that that's what the the philosophy uh, was was all about. Uh, and we've covered some of his military exports, both in the World War and the First World War. But that wasn't the end of it, because in the Second World War, he also got involved again uh, with people like Churchill uh, and the other parts of the Brits to to fight the to fight the Germans. Correct. Um, the Second World War, he, uh, he of course, um, there was in Parliament in South Africa, um, the United Party government, coalition government of Herzog and, and Smuts. Um, Herzog wanted to remain neutral mm-hmm. um, on the face of it. Many of the um, supporters of the, of the United Party on the uh, more conservative right-wing side, uh, Herzog supporters, uh, wanted very much to um, support Germany in the, uh, in the war. Obar said, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Uh, the way he sees it, and it went to the vote, which the Obas won, and um, Herzog uh, resigned, and Sir Patrick Duncan, if I recall correctly, asked the Obas to form a government, which he did, and he then promptly declared war on Germany as well. Uh, to him, it was a, a moral obligation. Um, it was not something that you could uh, slip and slide around. Uh, he had a commitment to, uh, to England uh, primarily, and it was one that he uh, needed to uh, fulfill. Which, which he did. Uh, and South Africa, of course, um, fought way above their, um, uh, their weight with, um, in, in so many respects. Uh, and not least of all, let it, let it be said very clearly, the, um, the Jewish, South African Jewish community were extremely involved um, and very successfully so. I mean, a lot of it had to do with what they call now the Mediterranean theater, right? You know, driving the Nazis out of North Africa to Nizia, Egypt. Uh, and I think probably people listening to this program uh, invariably had people who were captured at Tobruk, uh, which is where a lot of the Jewish South Africans ended up ju- during the war. Uh, and, and he was very involved in inspecting the troops and going up to Cairo and, and also liaising with the imperial uh, cabinet in terms of, of policy and practice from uh, from a strategic perspective. 
Surely, um, he was a very close confidant of uh, of Churchill's. Um, uh, Richard Stone's book will tell you that um, Churchill idolised the Obas. Um, he was he was a, a, a sound strategist, and if one reads the book, uh, it, it come, becomes quite clear on just how he he thought about the strategies of the second of, of the Second World War. But bearing in mind at that stage as well, the Commonwealth was in, in existence, um, which is also effectively a creation of the Obas. Um, but yes, he uh, he was very involved. He didn't spend much time at home at all, um, to the extent that um, Churchill said that the uh, lodestar that he was using for transport was uh, too weak, too small, and too slow, and uh, gave him an Avro York with which to commute. Um, <laughs> so he didn't spend much time in South Africa uh, during the Second World War. He was away frequently, um, as you quite correctly say, um, in North Africa, Egypt. Um, very involved with that, and, and often, of course, still in London um, on the on the war cabinet there. Uh, where he, he sort of continued the involvement he had uh, from the First World War. So very involved um, and used to rally around his uh, troops, um, particularly in North Africa and the Middle East. Now, th- there's a very famous battle in, in South Africa carrying on the mil- military theme called the Battle of Spionkop, right? It was a Anglo-World War uh, battle. And the reason it's famous... Is not only because of what happened at the battle itself, but because of the people on the field, right? You've mentioned Winston Churchill. He was one of them. Uh, Jan Smuts was there as well. But there was a third person, uh, and that was Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, he was in South Africa at the time. And Smuts and Gandhi also have this very interesting uh, history and engagement in a funny way, in a similar way to Smuts in England in terms of Adversaries who eventually became friends. Tell us a little bit more about about their engagement together. Well, as as we know, Gandhi came to South Africa and uh, caused the Obos quite a few headaches, uh, climbing onto the wrong railway carriages and this sort of thing. Uh, as you correctly say, he was a stretcher bearer in uh, at Spienkop and uh, in the Boer War. Um, but there again, um, and, and and possibly it is the sign of of, of great men. Um, and just to preface what I'm going to say about telling you that. Queen Federica of the Hellenes once asked the Obas if he hated the Germans during the Second World War, and he said no, he didn't. Uh, he felt sorry for them. Um, only people he'd ever hated in his life were the British during the Boer War. But he got over that, um, which I think is a sign of a great man anyway. Um, Gandhi was the same. He and the Obas were frequently on the wrong side of the political, or different sides of the political fence, certainly. Um, and yet, Gandhi and the Obas um, certainly had enormous respect for each other, which the communications that they exchanged will will indicate. They wrote to each other with, with great respect and, and, and quite a lot of affection. Um, there's the uh, the wonderful story of the sandals that the uh, that Gandhi made for the Obas whilst uh, being in jail, whilst where, being where, where he had where Smuts had put him. <laughs> Absolutely, and and the sandals are still in existence. Where, where are they today? Uh, in, at a hidden location, because oh, they are okay. they'd obviously be quite sought after. <laughs> um, I know the the general proximity, but not specifically where they are. <laughs> um, but they 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 were also um, they had affection and respect for each other, most certainly. Um, unlike Churchill and Gandhi, uh, and they they. They actually had a number of interesting discussions, Churchill and Obas, about Gandhi, where uh, Churchill did not uh, accord Gandhi the same degree of 
uh, authority and influence in India as the Obas did. The Obas said that uh, Gandhi is hugely influential. He, without him, there will be no uh, peace in India. And um, uh, Churchill did, intended not to uh, take that too seriously. Um, <laughs> he, he discounted Gandhi's influence, which, as we know, um, was massive as it happened. Uh, controversial, even in India, but it uh, certainly massive. It, it certainly mattered, absolutely. So, so, so they had uh, this um, relationship, and and credited with uh, Smuts being able to perhaps see the philosophical side of uh, of Gandhi uh, because he was a philosopher, being able to understand the spiritual activism and the spiritual politicalness that Gandhi brought to any kind of an argument. Actually, I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, and while the, the spiritual beliefs might have been different, um, certainly the Obas being a very spiritual man himself, uh, not conventionally so, let it be said. Uh, but certainly he was a very spiritual man. Um, uh, one only has to read the, uh, uh, the the religion of the mountain speech that he gave to understand that. Um, he and Gandhi, I think, respected one another. Um, not least of all, possibly because they understood that the each other's motives were, were, were pure. Uh, there was no, nothing ulterior about what they wanted. It was uh, what, the, what they wanted to achieve and the way they, was, they thought they were going about it was... Uh, what was pure and above board. And, and the actual issue was the rights of what they called Asians at the time, but, but Indians basically, uh, to reside in the Transvaal uh, and work. And, and there was huge arguments about what status they could be accorded, you know, what they should do. And, that, and that's really where Gandhi started producing the passive resistance movement uh, because that was how he would mobilize his supporters against the government of Smuts in the Transvaal to... Uh, to try and press the issue, so to speak. One has to look at these things in the context of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, people have often asked me why was the Obas uh, so racially hardened, uh, or perceptively so anyway, the perception being. Um, if the Obas had done anything racially um, that that would have upset the electorate. He he would have been out of power, whatever power he had, mm-hmm. um, within twenty four hours. Um, the, the the racial perceptions those days are very very different to what we have now. So it's very easy for us to um, to criticise based on today's standards, uh, which were not definitely not uh, the same in those days. They weren't the same in Europe. They weren't the same in America. They weren't the same in Australia. Even actually, if you read amongst uh, amongst people, the idea. Across the board, whether they were black or white or Indian, was the idea of one man, one vote was almost unheard of. That was an anathema. Yeah. No, one happened. woman, one vote. <laughs> no, heck, yeah, absolutely. W- women, you, uh, you're, not, you're not allowed to put a cross on a paper. Good gracious me. Um, this goes to show, thank heavens, how things have changed. But uh, you, you cannot um, assess or make judgments on what happened then based on today's standards. Life has changed. Perceptions have changed. Um, uh, the, the, the people acceptability and, and realization of people have, have, has changed tremendously. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that, but we're just going to take a short break and we'll come back. We'll be chatting again to Philip Veyer. Uh, he is uh, the great grandson of Jan Smuts. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. We're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I am Benji Shulman, and this is the new Beer Review. And we're discussing Ian Smuts, his life, his connection with the Jewish community, and uh, just the general interesting history of South Africa, and, and actually, in fact, the world, uh, about, and, and particularly in regard to, to Ian Smuts. Uh, Philip, 
this is a question that I often have and, and I've had an argument with people about. In, in 1948, Jan Smuts lost the election uh, unusually. Like people didn't think it would happen that the Nas- National Party would come in and they thought that the United Party would, would come in and it was a shock election, electoral defeat after the Second World War. Of course, we know after 1948, that was the start of apartheid, right? The real hardening policy law uh, that, that came in. Had Smuts come in in 1948, and, and he would have been caught between a very interesting set, set of events, and I'm asking you to speculate, but on the one hand, you had the, the African liberation movements that were uh, going in the world. You had the winds of change blowing through Africa, the British Empire disintegrating, uh, Smuts's very liberal perspectives in, internationally, but as you say, these, these the white power imbalance. What do you, th- do you think South Africa's history would have been had Smuts won in '48 and not the Nats? I think it would have been very different, Benji. Um, the fact is that shortly before the '48 election, the um, uh, the United Party, which was then obviously Smuts, uh, Hofmeyer, um, had commissioned uh, a report by the Honourable Mr. Justice Fagan um, in terms of how to deal with um, the Im- immigration into cities of black South Africans. And the report, the Commission came back with a report that was, um, by those standards then, uh, very liberal, um, saying that integration had to happen um, and that basically that to keep uh, black people out of the cities or in pre-designated um, areas on the city limits um, was not a sustainable policy, and I think those. I think the Obos would have implemented those. Um, I think his government would have implemented those. What would have happened as a consequence of implementing those is anybody's guess. But um, of course, the the national government when they came in in forty eight did their own commission, um, which came back with precisely the opposite. <laughs> Said so, no, you keep uh, keep the black people out. Um, and, and, and basically start apartheid at a legal correct, level. Correct. Um, I think that the make no mistake, the the leaders of the of the Nationalist Party in those days were not by any stretch stupid. Um, Milan was no fool. Um, interesting that family go the history goes back with the Smuts's couple of generations as well. Uh, the Obas taught D.F. Milan in, in Sunday school as a, as a child. So, um, but they were, they, were, they were not fools. I just don't think that they had. Possibly the perception um, of seeing, looking forward and taking um, a macro look at what was going to happen and the possibility of what was going to happen, the consequence of what was going to happen um, if changes were not made. And as we know, changes weren't made, and um, um, we, we know the consequences we of, 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 the, of, of that was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think things would have been very different. And I think the, the incorporation of black South Africans and when I, mean, I say that I'm, I'm talking obviously um, Indian and coloured South Africans as well uh, into mainstream South Africa and the mainstream economy would have happened a lot faster mm, Absolutely Now let's get off the history for a little bit uh, You were recently in Israel for the centennial of the Balfour Declaration uh, What was that like? Have you ever been before? What was the experience? Absolutely fascinating um, if LL is listening, they might like to invest in new aircraft on the Joburg <laughs> Tel Aviv route. I hear those are coming, by the way. I'm delighted to hear it. Um, the, the television screen I had was one square foot and was about 20 meters away from me. But uh, no, they got there. They got, there me, um, got me there safely, which is, which is wonderful. Um, fascinating country. Absolutely fascinating country. The visit was initiated by, uh, by Peter Bailey, um, 
Joburg resident now, uh, previously now um, a resident in Hodasharon, and uh, two of his friends, who I'm delighted to tell you, I'm considered now as my friends, really special friends, uh, Joel Klotnik and uh, and Rob Hyde. And with Balfour coming up, um, the approaching Balfour in mind, um, I was approached to ask if uh, if it was possible would I uh, be able to make the journey across, um, which of course I was delighted to do. And it was fascinating, fascinating country in so many respects. Extremely high tech. Um, I was I was told when I was there that there are more startups in Israel than any other country in the world, um, which doesn't surprise me. Um, I was also told that the UAV um, technology um, that the America uses, and America is known to have the best UAV um, capacity in the world, um, the technology all comes from Israel, which also doesn't surprise me. And then you've got the, the contrast of this tremendously high-tech country. Um, and around the corner from a state-of-the-art um, office block where people are designing computer chips uh, is a 2,500-year-old excavation, uh, literally a stone throw away. And th- that contrast was, uh, was, for me, very, very interesting indeed. Um, it did my heart enormous good to see how involved... Uh, South African Israelis are in both in Israel um, and 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 in support and 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 uh, active act- uh, the activities of the of the Jewish population um, not only there here as well. Um, I thought that was absolutely tremendous, but it is so South African. Um, and of Ronana course, Fontaine. Ronana Fontaine. There you go. Um, if you if you are at a function and somebody comes up and you you know. They'll walk in and I'll say, how's it? <laughs> That's like a dead giveaway. Um, as a collective, I think some of the nicest people I've ever been fortunate enough to, uh, fortunate enough to meet in my life. Um, they are just tremendously gracious, giving, hospitable. Um, they fell over backwards to uh, to make my, my stay, um, my visit, uh, as informative as and enjoyable as uh, as it turned out to be, it was absolutely brilliant. And did you go to any with any official functions? Or? Yes, there were a number. Um, there was uh, a talk I did um, at uh, the shul in Ranana, uh, Rob Hyde's lunch club, which was which was tremendous. Um, I then did um, a, a talk at the Jewish Agency in Jerusalem, um, which was um, equally interesting. Um, and then Telford had a, v- a very nice evening. Uh, at the arts uh, center in Ranana, and um, almost 200 people were there, along with um, um, mostly South Africans. And the mayor was there, um, and uh, who spent some time in South Africa, funny enough, and is um, maybe not proficient, but certainly he knows basic Afrikaans, which uh, which which I find very interesting. But a tremendous group of people, absolutely splendid, and. Israel has several places named after Jan Smuts. Uh, there's a kibbutz and a few roads, and it's it's partly because he was one of the. Not, he was obviously the the Balfour Declaration, but later on at the United Nations, uh, he's credited by authors like Leon Uris as being amongst the small. Uh, he calls them the small men, right? The, the non-superpowers who helped to create uh, the state. Uh, did you get to see any any of that while you were there? We went to. Um uh, Ramat Yohanan, um, very interesting indeed. 
extraordinary place which um, has amongst its possessions the third largest um, polycarb PVC, PVC sheeting company in the world. Hmm. Um, and what interested me particularly is that you cannot be materialistic and be on a kibbutz. It just can't happen. Um, the chief executive of that uh, organization, of that enterprise, lives on the kibbutz and obviously gets paid uh, a right royal salary for running the large, third largest company in this, of its type in the world. But he doesn't get it. He, the money gets paid to the kibbutz, and he gets 3,500 shekels a month, which is what everybody else gets. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I, I find that absolutely fascinating. I think you have to be a special type of person um, to, to live on a kibbutz. And obviously the huge... Uh, benefits in terms of education, in terms of living, in terms of always having food, in terms of never having to worry about um, uh, about retirement because you will be looked after. And I think conceptually it's brilliant. I, I'm not sure it did suit me. <laughs> um, but there's still so, too many things I want in life. <laughs> um, but having said which, um, uh, very interesting indeed. And that was the, it was the second visit of family visit to uh, to Ramat Yohanan. Um, which was initially called Ramat Yohanan Smuts. But then Smuts, being expressed as Smuts, um, has a, a less than preferred meaning or in Yiddish. <laughs> in Yiddish. And uh, so they, they took away the Smuts part and just left it as uh, uh, Ramat Yohanan. But there's, there's a history of, of the kibbutz um, in the community center, in the dining, uh, dining halls, um, which... Um, Describes what uh, what the boss did. There's a there's a forest named after him, and there are various streets and boulevards. I think in uh, um, in Tel Aviv, also named after him. Um, and it, it comes, it's to me a very refreshing thing after having um, not heard anything about the Obas for most of my life, um, other than from my family, where it was um, my father being um, he ran ran the same route as the Obas did. He was also uh, also a red law at uh, Christ College, um, so I, I was well versed in Smith's history and the Obas history from and uh, from the family perspective. But other than than that, there was nothing. There's nothing I was taught in school that um, was going to tell me quite what he achieved. Well, 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 what his biographer has said is that he's, he was kind of forgotten by the Afrikaners because the Nats he he wasn't seen as patriotic enough and certainly uh, by by the ANC they would never regard him as a kind of a hero because of the early history so he kind of fell out of the South African story in some respects he did I, I think you'll find that um, the, the, he wasn't forgotten uh, um, he was actually taken out of history mm. by the by the, the, the Nats after 1948 um, I remember in my primary school, I think it was, there was a one paragraph about him, um, which, which really doesn't do him justice. Um, the ANC, a lot more conciliatory. Um, um, Toko Sikwali's father once told me that um, the Obos was the last of the good white men. And when I was uh, speaking to Toko Sikwali himself some while later, I said, you know, your father told me that the Obos was the last of the good white men. And he looked at me and he said, my father is a very, very wise man. Um, so they, they consider it, they understand. Madiba had kind thoughts about that, boss. Um, Madiba also understood that there were political realities um, which had to be faced, and you couldn't just do what you might have wished to do in those days, particularly along, uh, along racial lines. Um, and if you just look at today, still the emotions that are stirred up by um, our conservative 
um, um, Afrikaans members of the community, uh, they just react very negatively to a photograph of the Obas. And, you know, that he's a... I suddenly help my rugby sponsor, you know, things like that. Um, and you think that Obas has been dead for 67 years. And still all these emotions... Um, um, come to the fore, and they believe that he didn't do the the, the losses of the women, children, elderly uh, in the concentration camps justice. So if people would like to learn more about Jan Smuts, uh, there has been, as you say, a bit uh, uh, some scholarship, um, there are uh, places where you can go and learn. How can people find out more about him if they have an interest? The two easiest ways, Benji, um, in order, um, are first of all to uh, easily accessible, get hold of um, Unafraid of Greatness, the book by Richard Stein, which is highly competent um, and very authoritative and, and very readable. Um, and once you've read that one, which is about the Obas uh, himself, um, is then to engage in um, some nighttime reading of The Friendship, Smuts and uh, Churchill and Smuts, The Friendship, also by Richard Stein, also a highly competent, um, very readable uh, historical narrative uh, biography of the two. I've read it as well. Very, uh, as you say, very readable. And if you have any interest in First World War history, Second World War history, early South African history, uh, colonial uh, history, it, it, it covers all of them. So it's a, a fascinating read from that perspective. Absolutely. And you can also go to the museum. The, the Smith House Museum in Irene, just uh, just outside Irene, just east of Irene, um, is a very good place to visit. Uh, it's a private enterprise, by the way. It, it receives no assistance from uh, provincial or national museums bodies um, and uh, it's, it's a good place to learn there's a guide who can tell you a lot about them see how the Obas lived and I just want to add talking about the museum that when the museum ever needs anything the first people to join the queue to help is the South African Jewish community they have never forgotten very very interesting well uh Pretty much brings us to the end of the show. Philip, it's been absolutely a fascinating uh, few minutes having a chat with you. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. And, uh, yeah, g- good luck with, with everything that you're doing. And uh, uh, best of our wishes from Chaifem to your family. Thank you, Benji. It's great to be here again. And um, uh, it is good for me on a number of levels. One, to talk about the Obas is always nice. When you pitch the converted, it's even better. Um, but if I can... Um, Able, if I'm ever able to assist my Jewish friends or, or Israel, um, <clears throat> I'm, I'll be the first in the queue as well. So thank you for a, for a fine visit. Thank you, Philip Vela. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, we'll be back just after this. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Brings us to the end of the program for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Tabor for doing the sound, Mandy for the production, and yours truly all for listening. We'll see you next week.